This is a special call to action to our listeners to financially support this podcast and spread awareness of the Native Plants Dialogue through exclusive Plant Native Nebraska merch at plant-native-nebraska.myspreadshop.com. Wear our designs in your best effort to convert your friends and neighbors, or just simply look cool. Thank you for your continued support in our quest to help Nebraska plant native. Hello, and welcome to the Plant Native Nebraska podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Barlman. If you are new to tuning in, this show is for native plant enthusiasts, aspiring gardeners, suburban homeowners, growers, and thinkers anxious to learn more about growing Native American plants and creating habitat for wildlife. If this sounds like you, you've come to the right place. In today's episode, let's talk some Midwest natives. We chat with Nathan Duffy, owner of Midwest Natives Nursery in Lincoln, and dive into what native plants are low maintenance, what cold stratification even is, his take on the native plants dialogue, and much more. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder, if you're new to the native plants game, make sure to go back and listen to our very first episode, What Are Native Plants Anyway? That episode will get you on point for the rest of what we are going to discuss throughout this podcast. Make sure to listen if you haven't already. Hello. Hi. Well, thanks, Nathan, for being on the show with us today. Um, I'm excited to talk about your nursery a little bit. I know it's been becoming a really popular thing around town, talking to my friends. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about Midwest Natives Nursery, how it got started? Of course. Yeah. So Midwest Natives were a production and, and mainly retail greenhouse in Lincoln, Nebraska. And we specialize in native perennial wildflowers and grasses, primarily for the purpose of supporting and and protecting pollinators and wildlife in our urban landscapes. We carry almost 300 different species of native perennials. Most of them are native to our location here in Eastern Nebraska, but we do have some things that are a little bit more widespread um, throughout the Great Plains. And Of course, we are a systemic pesticide-free operation. We're not putting anything on the plants that are going to harm those pollinators that we're trying to support. And we, we absolutely try our best to be as sustainable as possible in our growing practices. And I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in depth as we go. So that's, that's kind of the gist of it. Oh, so there's no hidden neonicotinoids hanging out on the plants that you're selling. Is that right? Right. Absolutely not. If we do need to ever spray for any pests, we use all natural stuff, oil-based stuff. So can you tell us how Midwest Natives is different than, say, a typical nursery? What makes you guys different? To start out, obviously, we grow only native plant stuff. We don't carry anything else. We're kind of in a niche market there. You know, our customers that come, they know what they're coming for, and they know what we have. But to go a little further all of our plants are non-cultivar. So none of our plants have been bred. None of them are trademarked or patented, you know, and in the industry in that way, they're all truly our native wild plants. And a, a lot of what we grow is actually locally sourced and produced right here in Nebraska. So uh, one of our seed sources is Prairie Legacy. You know, you just had Kay on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and yeah. Um, we actually grow a lot of our plants from her stuff, and her stuff is wonderful. From there, a little bit different than most traditional nurseries that you'd maybe go to, a lot of nurseries don't necessarily grow their own stock, right? So they're going to either be buying in little plugs and potting them up, or in a lot of cases, they're just buying in ready-to-grow plants and reselling them. And mm-hmm. and all that they do while the plants are there is water them and, and maybe fertilize, and then they're out the door. So we grow all of our stuff locally right here in Nebraska from seed. And, you know, we think that that's a more sustainable method for sure. We don't have the carbon footprint associated with shipping in plants from all over the country. And we don't have the cardboard buildup and the 
shipping materials and fossil fuels involved in that. So we think our carbon footprint is a lot lower than most traditional nurseries in that way. And I think that growing everything in-house, we have healthier and happier plants because they're not being stressed by the shipping process. They're not mm. being stressed by all of a sudden one day they were in Florida and the next day they're in Nebraska and there's a major temperature difference and elevation difference and humidity difference. We're not stressing our plants in that way. And, and so we think that by the time the customer gets them, they've been under our care the whole time. And, and we think that's better all around for the plants and, and for our customers. That makes a lot of sense. And I like the sense that you're buying local, you know, you're not buying something that's been shipped and then shipped and then shipped. Um, yes. And it's, it's really not benefiting any sort of movement that's going on here locally, local business people. Like you said, you grow things from seed and then you have to make that into a sellable product for the customer. So literally from start to finish, you guys do all the work. Um, what does that look like? For us, we think, okay, growing season. Well, that starts in May. When does your season start? Like how early do you have to get going for these plants to be able to get to customers? The main challenge with natives is the cold stratification process. Mm. And um, I know some familiar, some people are familiar with that and some aren't. And I can go into that process in a more, little bit more detail if you'd like. But basically we start prepping most of our seeds in November, December to be ready for the next May. So it's a five, six, seven month process for us ahead of time to start prepping seeds and then plants and grow them out and then have them ready that first week of May when we open. So there's a lot of pre-planning, even though we're closed in the winter, you know, we're still doing work out in the greenhouse and, and, and at home and, and getting things stratified and prepped. So it's definitely a year around process for us, even though you guys see that we're only open you know, a couple of weeks at a time in the spring and at the fall. Yeah, for sure. I like that, you know, when people think about going to Midwest Natives now, they'll kind of have this idea in their head that they're supporting a truly full-scale nursery. So with with native plants, how did you make the decision to sell regionally native plants? Like, how did you arrive at that kind of choice? I guess I guess this could be a two-part question. So like, one, you know, how did you make the decision to sell regionally native over just selectively Nebraskan native, but then sure. also like, how did you come to the idea or the passion to sell native at all, as opposed to like other plants, just in general, what people would find in nursery? I'll start with that second question first. Um, so I went, I went to school for, for horticulture. I went to UNL here in Lincoln and graduated with horticulture degree and just during my studies, my first year after college, my dad let me grow a wildflower garden in his backyard. I had gotten this little random wildflower seed mix online. And at the time, the big thing was save the honeybees. That whole campaign, save the mm. bees, was big mm. back that, that, you know, 2012, 2013, 2014 area. So I got interested in honeybees. And then my dad was kind enough to let me tear up a little bit of his yard in the backyard and, and plant some of these wildflowers. And just in that one season, you know, a couple of month time span, those flowers coming up and blooming. And a lot of them were annuals. And I know now a lot of them that were in that mix were not necessarily native plants, but they still brought in pollinators and they brought in pollinators that we had never mm. seen in the yard before. Mm -hmm. things that we've never seen in the neighborhood before. And it's like, where are these things coming from? And, you know, obviously they're here and they're finding these plants and just seeing that happen over a single summer was truly inspiring to me. And so I got more into looking up wildflowers and looking up native plants and it just kind of grew from there. And I fell in love with it as mo as a lot of people do. People tell me it's uh, it becomes an addiction pretty fast with mm -hmm. the native stuff. <laughs> yeah, for but, sure. <laughs> so it just kind of spiraled from there and I got the idea in my head. And and when I graduated college, I, I started up the nursery that same year uh, right awesome. after I graduated. So, but back to the question about, you know, our plant selection, originally I did start out with just Nebraska native. And mm. there's quite a few of, there's quite a few of those, you know, I mean, 
hundreds are yeah. you know just native just native to Nebraska, but that kind of was the area where I could fudge a little bit because the business is pretty restrictive in its own right, just natives. Mm. And so I gave myself a little bit of wiggle room and I said, well, you know, what really is the difference between Southeast Nebraska and Northeast Kansas, right? It's just a an arbitrary border that we put there. There's no mm. nothing telling the pollinators not to go across that or the wildflowers to go across that. Mm. And and same same with eastern nebraska and western iowa the only thing separating that is the missouri and plenty of native species grow naturally on both sides mm -hmm. so i kind of started expanding a little bit i added western iowa and i added northwestern missouri and northeastern kansas and just kind of year after year i i because i love these plants and yeah. i i don't want to restrict myself and i don't want to restrict my customers so i started spreading a little bit more and a little bit more. And now six years later, we kind of have a big range of things that grow all over the Great Plains. Yeah. And the, you just used the word range. And that word is like sticking in my head right now because, you know, we can try to determine exact ranges of things, but it's our best guess. Mm -hmm. And, you know, talking to you and Kay and Bob, it's kind of just like, well, you know, we're all trying to create habitat. So, when you talked about your dad's wildflower garden, I kind of want to dive a little bit more into that. Um, so this interest in plants, did you inherit, I'm just curious, did you inherit any interest in plants from your parents at all? I I do think so, yeah. My my dad is a big outdoorsman, um, big hunter and, and fisherman and just, you know, height mushroom hunting and, you know, going out and searching for morale mushrooms in the spring, all that kind of stuff. So growing up, my brother and I and my dad, we were outside all of the time doing that kind of stuff. And in addition to just having a traditional vegetable garden in the backyard, my dad always had a vegetable garden and nothing crazy, you know, your standard stuff, tomatoes and peppers and all that. But I think what he really taught my brother and I, just being out there and being around nature was more of an appreciation and a, and a, and a respect for nature and, and mm. understanding that everything you see around you is connected to nature and, and connected by nature. And those values, I think when you teach a child those values really young, it sticks with them and, and they don't lose that. In my case, I continued being interested in that stuff and I had wonderful mentors and teachers and people as I you know went up through school, middle school and high school. I, I knew plenty of, of folks that were interested in that stuff, and they kind of kept it going in me. And so by the time I got to college, it, it just made total sense to stick with plants and, and do what I can to help the environment and learn as much as possible and, and, uh, and try to spread that to the community just as those people kind of spread it to me. For sure. For sure. I'm with you there all the way. That's awesome. Um, I think it's one of those things where, like, we just – you find something that makes sense – and whether, you know, maybe it was our parents that like exposed us to it or our next door neighbor or whatever, but when something kind of clicks and you follow it, uh, that's where the magic happens. But also we're, we're just, we're just plant nerds. So it's easy for us yes. at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> that, that as well, you know, I think people are to some degree are naturally born with a green thumb and some aren't. And so, but if, if those people that are good with plants, if we can get them into natives and get them into doing something other than you know, just vegetable gardening in their yard. And that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So I'm curious about one thing and it's, it's something that's actually kind of a personal question because, um, so I've been buying from you guys, I think, uh, probably two solid years now. And oh yeah, maybe, maybe more than that even. Yeah. Maybe three years. Um, <laughs> I, I'm curious how you come up with which plants that you're going to sell in the spring and which you're going to sell in the fall. Um, I'm sure it has to do with like grow times and stuff like that. But if you could go in depth, that'd be cool. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a great question. So at our fall sales, we generally have less species and overall less quantities of the things we do have. And part of that is just because fall planting isn't as popular as the spring. You know, that's a remnant of traditional gardening habits where people get their stuff done in the spring and then they kind of call it a year. But 
it's not in our case it's not that native plants can't be planted in the fall or that our selection of things we carry in the fall can be planted at that time and others can't it doesn't really have to do with that but more so about when we plant seeds for our fall sales so a lot of native plants actually prefer to germinate in really cool temperatures so 40 to maybe 50 degrees and we can mm -hmm. hit that we can hit those temperatures when we plant our spring stuff in March and that stuff grows wonderfully. But when we need to re, we, we actually replant all of our stuff for our fall sales. So that's, that's part of the thing. But when we're replanting things in the middle of the summer to be ready by September, there's just certain plants that can't grow at that time because it's too warm. So we really are, I don't want to say we're at the mercy of, but that's just what nature dictates. Those plants don't want to mm. grow at that time because it's not natural for them to do so. So certain things get emitted from our fall sales due to that. But we're trying to work around it a little bit. We, when possible, we try to overplant some of that stuff in the spring so we can try to have leftovers that we can carry to the fall. But some things, yeah, it's just nature is the way it is. And, and mm -hmm. if they don't want to grow at that time, we're not going to force them to. Cool. I need to be my own uh, manager and be like, okay, if you want to get these plants in the spring, um, you need to get them in the spring um, because there's yeah. there's going to be less stuff in the fall. I feel like that's a problem clients of mine have too. They want to do all this stuff in the fall and it's like, there's nothing left now. Like there's nothing left for us to do. So the anticipation of waiting all the way to the next year is really, really tough. But yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. So anyone listening, if you've got big garden plans, if you want to get your native garden started, you better get cracking because a lot of yes. this stuff sells out in the spring. So good to know. A few minutes ago, you touched on cold stratification. So mm -hmm. let's let's dive into that a little bit. Can you briefly go over the process of cold stratification um, in a way that won't completely overwhelm the average non-sciencey <laughs> person? So for those not super familiar, cold stratification is a process that many native seeds have to go through and it's in order to germinate. So without this process, they will never sprout. They'll just kind of sit there and wait. And what it ultimately is, is a certain period of cold and wet conditions. And that's what the native seed would naturally experience going through a winter. Really, it's a defense mechanism that the seeds have evolved, and it, it ensures that they don't germinate, you know, in those 70-degree days that we tend to get in January, right? We, we call, might call it fool spring. The seeds know that that's a trick, and they know it's not going to last, and so they've evolved this mechanism where they have to wait a certain amount of time, and when they say, okay, the time is up, it's generally safe to, to germinate now. So, it's just a natural thing they have, but you can accomplish that process artificially indoors. And we have to do that in order to grow most of what we sell. And there's plenty of easy ways to do it. One popular method that's going around is the milk jug method, if you've heard of that, outdoor mm. winter sowing milk jugs. Um, and that's as simple as you cut a milk jug in half and you put soil and your seeds in there and you wet it. And that's the main part of this is it's got to be moist but you close that milk jug back up and you just let nature do its thing and then those mm. plants will come up naturally when they're ready to mm. we do it a little bit differently because we're doing it on such a large scale so we do it indoors and it's as simple as as wrapping our seeds up in a coffee filter wetting it putting it in a plastic baggie and and setting it in the fridge and from there it's more about how long they need to be in the fridge. So all native plants are a little bit different from each other and they have different requirements. Some things only need to be in there as short as 10 days. So pretty quick process. Other mm -hmm. things that we germinate, um, kind of, as I mentioned before, some of those things we start in November. It's a four or five month period in order to get them to germinate. So that's kind of a quick overview. It's there's a lot of great guides online. One of our favorite resources for finding out those lengths is Prairie Moon Nursery's website. All of the species they sell are, are listed with the stratification length. So that's super helpful. 
and they have some great guides on their website as well on on different methods of of accomplishing the stratification. Mm, so mm. definitely, if people want to try growing things on their own indoors, um, that's a great place to look just to get info. You know, I was getting some of my seeds done, or at least my attempt at getting some of these seeds done. I thought it was interesting. I read recently scarification was kind of, they were making a parallel between scarification and soaking the mm -hmm. seeds overnight. Um, and I didn't know those two things kind of had the same sort of function. So that really surprised me. But is that true? Like when you're sowing stuff in the greenhouse, there might be some where it says to scarify and you just soak them instead? Or or do you know uh, on personal experience if it does the same kind of thing at like breaking the seed coat? Yeah, so scarification and the word scar is in there. It literally means to to scratch the seed, basically. Mm. It's generally seeds that have a hard seed coat, like you mentioned, or really hard seeds. So off the top of my head, things like some of the wild rose seeds need to be scarified. Um, a lot of the legume species need it as well, just because they have that really hard seed coat to them. We do some scarification on a few things, mm. but in terms of soaking, what I what we actually do on some things is a boiling treatment. So we'll boil oh. a pot of water. And then we'll we'll pour that hot water over the seeds and let them soak in that overnight. And then that kind of accomplishes a couple of things that can soften up the seed coat with the hot water. Mm. You know, the near boiling water, you don't want to actually have it boiling, but near boiling that softens up the seed coat. And it also simulates fire. So there's certain native seeds that need fire in order to germinate and that kind of hot. And it's really what it is, is it's temperature based. So adding that near boiling water to those seeds kind of tells it, hey, a fire just went through and it's a good time to germinate. So mm. yeah, all sorts of different methods, you know, from stratification and scarification and boiling. Some things we do all three on. We'll sand the seed, we'll do a boil treatment, and then they'll go into the into the fridge for cold strat for X number of days. So it's a, it's a process and a lot of trial and error for sure. But hey, it's exp it's experimenting and if we can get some of those cool plants to grow that are hard to grow, but we can get them figured out, and that's great. It's as they say, it's a labor of love. Like it's just, oh, yeah. it's a lot of work to getting these things going. Uh, so anyone listening in, you just got some insider secrets. Maybe uh, try boiling, <laughs> try boiling some water and soaking. Yeah, I, oh, I yeah. like uh, I like growing the wild lupine. I think that's when you have to mm -hmm. soak. And uh, yeah, definitely. Oh, there's that uh, partridge pea. Is it showy partridge pea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So both of those are legumes and, you know, things like baptisia and lead plant generally benefits yeah. from that kind of stuff. So yeah, oh, I'll yeah. let I'll let you guys do all the pre-treatment stuff and I'll just <laughs> I'll just take the You're trays. Just by the you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so speaking of plants that you have. Are there plants that you don't currently have in your lineup that you're trying to grow in the future? Stuff that you you kind of want to have, you just don't have yet? Yeah, for the most part, we have, I mean, like I mentioned, we have over 300 different species right now. So we honestly mm. have a little bit of everything. But one of the areas that we are kind of lacking in are some of those more woodland type spring ephemerals. Mm -hmm. So something I would love to start having is like spring beauty and trilliums and maybe some of the trout lily species. Virginia bluebells is an awesome, awesome plant. So that kind of stuff would be great, but they are the most difficult plants to produce commercially. And that's just the main problem with them. The few nurseries that do carry them, it's years and years and years before they have a sellable plant. It takes a long time and it's just not something we can do currently the way our operation works just because of how our schedules work and all that. But, mm -hmm. and then from there, so spring ephemerals, and then from there, I've been dabbling a little bit in starting to carry some woody plants. So traditionally, we've focused primarily on the perennial stuff, the stuff that dies back to the ground each year and then comes back. 
but some of those woody plants are really, really beneficial to pollinators and the environment. So I've been buying in, we're not growing them ourselves at this point, but I've been buying in a few things here and there, um, things like elderberry and snowberry and coralberry, mm, yep. different native dog dogwoods and viburnums and wild plum is super cool. So that kind of stuff, I'd love to carry a little bit more of some of those yeah, woody plants. That would be awesome. I would buy a lot of them, um, especially the, like, did you say coral berry? You did say coral yeah. berry, right? I would buy mm -hmm. so many coral berry. <laughs> well, they are I'll let you in. I'll let you in on a little secret where we're going to have some this spring. So yay! All right. Well, that's fun. <laughs> yep. You know, you always go like into the woods. Um, you know, there's some woody areas in North, North Omaha and like near Florence and stuff, or, you know, even at some of these botanical gardens and you just see a huge stand of coral berry, like on a, on a little yeah. hillside and it's just the best thing ever. Great plant. Mm -hmm. um, oh yeah. So yeah, I can I can definitely get on board with everything you just said. If you guys found a secret magic way to grow the spring ephemerals, that'd be super cool. So we'll just have to yeah. have to see. Um, so those sound like difficult plants, the woodland ones you were talking about. What are some easy plants to work with? I mean, for you or maybe, sure. you know, for your customers, like when people come in and they're like, what's something easy? What would you recommend? Yeah. To me, easy to work with, and I, I am going to talk from the, the more, you know, the homeowner and customer perspective here. To me, an easy plant is is something that is adaptable enough that you can kind of just put it anywhere. Full sun, a little bit of shade, you know, it's going to be drought hardy, but maybe it likes wet feet a little bit. So things that mm. you can't really mess up where you put it. And so for beginners, these are some things that I recommend a lot. Um, for some spring bloomers, wild columbine, I think is one of the easiest things to get going and they, you know, they'll reseed and fill in kind of all over the place, but, <laughs> um, golden Alexander is another good spring mm -hmm. plant. Both of those, you can kind of just put them anywhere and they'll do their thing for more on the summer side, purple coneflower, just the regular echinacea purpurea is always a super easy one. Lanceleaf coreopsis, um, things like early sunflower, a couple of the different blazing star species are fairly simple to get going. And Anis hyssop is one of my favorite plants of all time. Mm -hmm. It has such a long bloom time. It starts blooming in June and it'll go until the first frost happens in October or November. Yeah. Those things just don't quit. They can I've I have some that are growing in full sun. I have some growing in full shade. They don't mind it. They're they're super adaptable. And then for more some fall specific plants, heath aster is a wonderful one. Stays fairly short. It likes heat and drought and wonderful white blooms to it. Missouri goldenrod is another good one. I know I listened to your podcast with Bob and he was really, really oh, yeah. excited about gold, <laughs> yeah. goldenrods. And I, I'm the same way about goldenrods. Everybody should have a goldenrod in their yard. And an easy one to start with is Missouri. It's a, one of the shortest ones there is. It's not an mm. aggressive spreader by any means. Mm -hmm. And it actually kind of blooms a little bit earlier than most goldenrods. So you're going to start seeing it bloom in July and August a lot of the time. Cool. But so yeah, those things I, I always recommend. They're generally well-behaved. They all are on the shorter side. And yeah. if you're coming to, coming to the nursery and you've got, you don't have any experience with natives, those are kind of the things I recommend to, to those, natives. Those are all great plants. And Ace Hyssop, I mean, it smells so good. You just want to eat it. Like yeah. it just smells so incredible. I I wish it could just be everywhere, everything all at once, you know? <laughs> It's yeah, so good. I know I know some people don't love black licorice and so that's the smell that it has but um but I I enjoy it yes yeah <laughs> and um I know so I actually got onto Heath Aster I don't know if it's something that you initially recommended to me it probably was something that you did recommend mm -hmm. and then I planted it and it's just beautiful like it's a weird woody ground cover in a way like I wasn't expecting it to be so woody um, I know, you know, the asters are woody, but what I was really surprised about was how well it started filling in. And then you're kind of least mm -hmm. expecting that when it does bloom, you're not really expecting this 
it's literally like a blanket of snow. It is so, so incredible. And I've got it in my front garden that's just assaulted with full sun. It's never watered and it's just so, so happy. So uh, I second that as being a great one. Um, Yeah, wow. Uh, Do you, you carry, uh, I'm sure you carry the wild geranium there, don't you? We do get it in sporadically. Um, that's one that we don't grow in house. We we do get it in mm. from another grower, but mm. but we do get it in um, occasionally. And and when they pop up, they go pretty quick. So <laughs> yeah, the geraniums are good for like another ground cover. Do you grow wild strawberry? Oh yeah, yep. We do wild strawberry from seed, and that's I love that one as well. And most interesting thing about that i have a lot of people when i tell them oh yeah we sell wild strawberry they say oh i've got tons of that in my yard already and what people Uh, aren't necessarily aware mm -hmm. aware of is that what they have is mock strawberry the invasive one and it's not the same that you know the true wild strawberry actually has good tasting edible fruits yeah and um it's it's such a great plant awesome filler and ground cover and it's just going to spread around in between things underneath things Mm -hmm. and it's versatile too it can grow in full sun full shade super wet super dry it it will grow anywhere so great plant wild strawberry i love those dynamic plants and then uh i guess for a way for our listeners to know too how you differentiate between mock strawberry and the legit wild strawberries doesn't the mock strawberry have like yellow flowers and then the wild strawberry has white. That's one yes, of the ways so to the, tell. Yeah. The primary difference is going to be the flowers if you can catch them when they're in bloom. But then the fruits themselves on mock strawberry, they're almost a perfect sphere. And they have those mm. little bumps on them. And right. so the true wild strawberries actually just look like little mini strawberries. So the shape mm. of the fruit is a little bit different. And they actually have some good taste to them. So if you want to oh. try tasting them to see. okay so now on on the same kind of uh vein of thought so when these customers come in and they're looking for easy plants or whatnot when Mm -hmm. when you and a customer are talking about the term low maintenance what does that term mean to you and what are you kind of hoping it means to them there's actually been some discussions about this lately i've seen on on some social media stuff um Mm. And, you know, the question being asked is, are native plants really as low maintenance as they're being advertised as? Mm. And to me, absolutely, yes. But it's once you've gotten them kind of through their first year, once you've gotten them established, then native plants are going to require less inputs overall than any other type of exotic that you might have to be caring for on a more extensive basis. So in Mm -hmm. terms of that, once you've got them in the ground and they're growing, they don't need supplemental water. They don't need to be fertilized every week or every season. They don't need to be sprayed with fungicides because they got powdery mildew, which a lot of uh, ornamentals tend to get and natives don't. And so just all around, yes, I believe native plants are lower maintenance. But one of the points there is that where the maintenance is required is kind of upfront and it's doing that, doing your homework and doing that research and planning mm. and making sure that the plant you're planting is going into the right spot. If you've done that work ahead of time and you're putting it where it wants to be, then that plant is going to be very low maintenance. If you stick a, a plant that needs a lot of water in your health strip, that plant's not going to be low maintenance and it may not exist there for very long. And then you've got to plant another one, which is more maintenance. So site prep, site prep, site prep is always important and and make sure that you've got the right plant in the right place. And then absolutely, I believe that that they are low maintenance from then on. That makes total sense. And I, mm-hmm. I found it interesting too, because, you know, my background is I started out kind of in love with roses and traditional gardens. Mm -hmm. And I acquired all these exotic, uh, you know, fancy roses, English roses. Um, And what's interesting is, you know, after a few winters here, I kind of realized, oh my goodness, like what was a beautiful rose bush has now got to be lopped all the way to the ground because the canes are dead. But ever since purchasing native roses from you, 
Um, for instance, uh, was it Rosa Arkansana, Rosa Carolina? I mean, I've never had to cut a single cane off of them. So it's kind of like, right. I think that's a good example when someone says, well, come on. I mean, are native plants really low maintenance? It's like, well, I have rose bushes. I don't have to cut ever. Exactly. So to me, yeah. yeah, for sure. That's low maintenance and, and they look fantastic too. Oh yeah. They are wonderful plants. So I know in the past I've seen, I want to say like uh, last year or so I saw a photo of like a, a native garden you had installed. I think it might've even been in your own yard or your parents' yard. Um, yeah. Yeah what's your what's your personal experience with like prepping a site or actually getting the plants in the ground laying them out kind of planning where things are going to go i'll i'll go through it a little bit but we actually have a guide on our website that goes through that whole process but i'll i'll walk walk with you through it for sure so on a on a smaller scale planting and in most cases people thinking about putting in a pollinator garden the first step is that you've got to some way kill off or remove that ex existing turf grass, right? You've got to get rid of that. You do want to start with fresh, bare soil when possible. So on a smaller scale area, and if you're able to do the labor, uh, I actually like to go through and just scalp away the existing turf grass with a sharp shovel right underneath their root. You know, you're barely even into the soil at this point because native, you know, non-native turf grasses only have a couple inch deep roots so but we're we just scalp it off with the shovel kind of like you're you know you're making a uh, a sod mat and scalp it away and then i like to put down a layer of compost or manure or a mixed mixture of the two just a two inch layer of compost right on top of that new you know newly fresh open bare soil and the key here is not to till it in so tilling is is probably the worst thing you could do when when trying to open up a new planting because one it disturbs the soil the healthy or you know what is there in the soil to begin with but it brings up all these weed seeds that have been mm -hmm. under there under your lawn for decades and you know decades and decades it brings those up to the surface and then you're going to have a very difficult time weeding and dealing with all of that so mm. we don't do any tilling we just put this layer of compost down on the surface two inch layers or so and then that kind of acts as your weed barrier weed seeds that you did disturb aren't going to be able to come up through that two inch layer of compost so it's acting as a weed barrier and then we just plant our plants directly into that dig your holes and plant right into that and and try not to disturb uh, as much as you can and and then no mulch. There's no need for mulch on top, no need for wood mulch because that compost is acting as your protection layer. And it's also going to provide some nutrients to your plants over the first couple of years. So as that compost gets broken down and works its way down into the underlying soil by the plants, they're going to get some nutrients from it as well. So so that's kind of our main method. Mm. You know, of course. It's pretty labor intensive to do that scalping away of the turf. And it's it's really just for small areas. On larger spaces, of course, I know you and Kay talked about cardboard method and smothering yeah. and solarization. On bigger spaces, some of those methods may be better better suited, but for just small areas, we just mm -hmm. like to do it by hand and and it's yeah. a quick process, you know, where we've got a whole whole bed done in a day in most cases so yeah it's pretty simple and and we like to plant tight for sure native plant density is you know we recommend anywhere from eight to 12 inches apart from each other and and really let it fill in tight keep those weeds suppressed and and as things fill in that's it's going to look more wild and but that's what you want with natives i think so it yeah. can be formally designed in terms of where you're putting each plant, but as they fill in, it just looks so cool to have the plants growing with each other and touching each other and, mm -hmm. and you know, to some degree kind of battling each other a little bit because that's what they do. But 
that looks so much more natural than placing plants two or three feet apart and all this wood mulch in between. Yeah, absolutely. And that that just look that just looks dead to me. So I like to see these plantings that are really lush and full mm -hmm. and and more more wild and natural looking. Yeah, and I think that look is kind of getting in vogue now, even though you know that may be yeah. a passing aesthetic fad uh, to some people. But I'm so glad that you brought up scalping is what you do. Mm -hmm. Cause it kind of valid because I scalp, uh, I get my yeah. little drain spade and I just at a 45 degree angle, just slice right across, yeah. the, you know, I get down and just slice right across. And it's, I feel like there was one time I did it and it was really dry and it was horrible. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so hard. So every time I do it now to an area, like a new area I'm making, I'll like run and I never run as like, I don't even have sprinkler system, but I'll run. Uh, like a little oscillating sprinkler on the area to kind of dampen, dampen it enough yeah. so where I can slice in and it goes in really easy. Um, so that's what oh, I that, recommend. That's to a people. great idea. Yeah. But the compost, the yeah. two inch layer of compost, I love that. Like top dressing mm -hmm. it. And then it kind of, it kind of works as mulch with the added benefit exactly. of actually adding nutrients to the soil. Love it. Yep. So yep. I'm going to, I'm going to steal that. I'm going to do that now. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, so I guess what I'm curious, what other kinds of questions do you get asked when someone comes into a nursery on a Saturday afternoon or like to be fun, to be super fun right now? What's the weirdest question you've ever been asked when someone's coming to oh, your nursery? <laughs> oh, uh, you've put me on the spot there. I don't know. I, I don't know if I could come up with the weirdest question. To be okay, honest. great. We're all um, normal. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People, you know, the main thing is people that walk in the door and they don't know what we even are. And so I get asked a lot on Saturdays, oh, where are your vegetables at? Do you care vegetables? And okay. no, we're just all, all native plants. It's all flowers. So but I kind of get those people that just wander in and they, they don't know what they're, they're there for, but mm -hmm. um, nothing too weird. No, no. Oh, well, good. Back to that kind of first question what I try to help, especially people who are just getting started and, and people who may even be, you know, a little overwhelmed with the selection, because when you walk into our place, there are a lot of plants there. What I try to harp the most is diversity. And mm. so our, our kind of best deal that we promote is buying a full tray of 32 plants. Our trays hold 32 of our little plants. And so somebody walks in and they say, I don't know what I'm doing, but I have this empty tray in my hand. What do I need to pick out? And mm -hmm. so the kind of, the method I kind of recommend, which I think is, is super sleek and efficient for most people, is try to pick three or four species for each bloom season and then pick three or, and then grab three or four of each of those things. So if you picked out three spring bloomers and you got three of each, that's nine. If you picked out four summer bloomers and you got three of each, that's 12. Maybe you get three fall bloomers and you get three of each of those. So before you know it, you're at your 32, 30 or 32 plant mark. And so that's a super easy way. I say, you know, go to the spring plant section and just pick out three things you like and get three of each and carry that on for each season. And then to go a little bit more in depth, you know, I say to people, make sure that the four things that you picked for the summer blooming time aren't all coneflowers, right? Try to mix mm. it up a little bit. Don't pick four different types of coneflowers, you know, grab some of that anise hyssop, grab a coreopsis, mm. grab maybe even a mountain mint, you know? So I try to harp on diversity as much as possible. Yeah, don't, don't for whatever any circumstances leave without liatris. Like do not- yes leave without yes. a species of liatris. <laughs> oh yeah. And then of course a milkweed too. I, I always try to make sure people, you know, at least have some type of, of milkweed in that, in that tray that you're grabbing. And, you know, the whole idea is to support as many different types of pollinators as we can. And, and diversity there is, is absolutely key. I love it. Cause you know, and this is probably going to be the topic of, of other podcasts, or we've brought it up a little in previous podcasts, like diversity is where the magic's at. Because oh, yeah. we can, I mean, you know, technically you could have a native garden and it's it's just all purple coneflower, 
Um, but without that variety in there, well, one, you're missing out on, you know, a free color show. Um, so you're missing out on all the dynamic things just for your benefit, but then also too, the, the ecosystem is missing out on all those diverse things for their benefit. So definitely good to go with, mix it up. That's the way to go. Yeah. And for people that are a little bit more experienced, I try to get them to start buying things that aren't overly showy, but are awesome for pollinators so and, and taller things too people have this tendency to not want anything that's going to be taller than them i don't know what it is some sort of instinctual thing there but people don't like the super tall stuff so when i when i get returning customers and people that i've i've learned to know over a few years and i say hey you know would you want to try something that's tall or would you want to try something that maybe isn't the prettiest but it's gonna bring pollinators different pollinators to your yard and so that's i try to promote that kind of stuff with a little bit more experienced folks yeah i know i know for sure that you did that with me with figwort um you're yep. like hey i know this one isn't the prettiest one but it's super great for pollinators and so i planted it and i saw what you meant like you know maybe someone really really particular about just wanting flowers flowers everywhere they would mm -hmm. maybe never consider figwort. Um, but I'm glad that you made a note for me to consider that one because it's a great plant. Oh, yeah. 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 And loved by hummingbirds out of all the plants we have in our gardens. The thing the hummingbirds love the most is that is that late figwort in the fall. So awesome plant all around. Maybe I'm the weird customer because I want tall <laughs> stuff. Like I want yeah. the tallest of the tall stuff because mm -hmm. it's. It's just, it creates something so magical and ethereal. So I'm not scared oh, yeah. of the I, tall stuff, but. I'm that, that way too. The tall stuff is my favorite, you know, the big sunflowers and figworts and the silphiums, especially big, tall cup plant and all that kind of stuff. I, I love the tall stuff. Yeah, I know Kate. So this is going to be my first year growing Maximilian sunflower. And Kate was telling me mm -hmm. it gets up to 10 feet tall. Is that correct? It, it sure can. And probably in an urban landscape it will um and it can tend to be a, a little bit of a spreader as well so if you if you've got a spot where you don't mind just letting it go and do its thing and that's the best place for it now you mentioned early sunflower um i'm getting i'm mm -hmm. getting some waves crossed so is early sunflower also known as false sunflower is that yes. the same one Okay. Yes. Um, we refer to it as early because it blooms in June-ish, but it's not a true sunflower. It's not a true um, helianthus. It's in a different genus. Mm. So that's why the, the, that's why the name false sunflower is there. So either oh, one is okay. in, interchangeable. Okay. It's also sometimes called oxeye sunflower, not to be confused with um, oxeye daisy, which is a non-native invasive plant actually. So oxeye sunflower or early sunflower that is so super confusing um because you know sunflowers yeah. are a daisy shaped flower right like right yeah 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 that's why we gotta we all have to start brushing up on our latin because uh no confusion yes. there yeah right yep latin names are good and um always helpful yes so we've been talking about Midwest Natives Nursery a lot, but did we talk about where it's located? Where are you guys located? Uh, so Lincoln, Nebraska, and where we're a little bit more specifically, we're on the west side of town near Wilderness Park, right off of Pioneers Boulevard. Um, if, if you're from Lincoln, it's been greenhouses on that property for the last 50 years. It's been different businesses here and there. So. Uh, some of the older folks might know it as Little's Nursery, it used to be called, or B&B &B Nursery, but we're on that spot now. Quick, easy drive from Omaha, 45-minute drive from Omaha, and um, and if you don't want to make the drive, we do offer delivery, um, mm. especially during our online ordering period, which will be at the end of April this year. If you order online, you can select plants for delivery, and then we make deliveries to Omaha during that period and then and then fairly regularly throughout the summer awesome that was gonna be another question i asked if you were still doing that so that's great to know yeah yeah and then are you guys planning on being at events uh this summer um i know i saw you last year at the mohal's wild plant party and i've seen you at mm -hmm. some other things what do you got going on this year for like special events or special appearances rather 
Right. I, I hope that Mohawks is going to do their wild plant party again. I haven't heard anything official from them yet. Normally that's in mid July or so is when we've done it the last few years. So that's always an awesome time. Not, not just for the plant sellers that are there, but there's so many cool vendors and live music and different things. And you know, you've been there with the Bellevue native society. So that whole thing is wonderful. If they do it again, we'll absolutely be there. And last year we, um, thanks to you, Stephanie, we were at the Bellevue farmer's market one weekend on a Saturday and that was really great. A lot of new new faces to see there and meet and, and get some people down in Bellevue a little bit more interested in the natives. So right now those are the two things we can, you know, we really can only do these type of pop-up sale, pop sales when we're not having our own sales. So kind of that midsummer time period when we actually close down in between spring and fall, that's when we can do those. But whenever they Whenever the opportunity arises with those, we we like to take them. Cool. Well, we hope to do the pollinator party again this year in Bellevue. So hopefully that'll yeah. all work out and we can have even more people and vendors there than we did last year. So that'll be great. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, get Kay, Kay down there and get some other different people. Yes, so. yes, for <laughs> sure. I have I have an entire list of people. I'm like, ah, these would be great to have a booth. I just feel like there's oh, yeah. so many, you know, we know each other you know, the people that are, you know, with the organizations and doing the work. Um, but I feel like we need to do a better job at getting together. So the public knows, you know, like, for instance, I know about Prairie Plains Institute, but if I go to my right. neighbor, or my friend, they have no idea what I'm talking about or the Xerxes society, or, mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds sad, but even keep Omaha beautiful. There's people who are like, what's that? So um, the more we yeah, can kind of get yeah. together and be like, hey, we exist. This is who we are. This is what we're doing. I think we'll be great for everybody. Right. And I think that's kind of what Mohals has been aiming for, you know, because some of those names you yeah. mentioned, they have been at the Mohals parties. And so, but yeah, great, wonderful ideas get, you know, those organizations that are just nonprofits that are education based, get some of those in involved would be wonderful. Yeah, for sure. So I know we talked about how you, you have two different selling periods. You've got one mm -hmm. in the spring and then you've got another one in the fall. So if someone um, listening who maybe is going to be a newbie to your nursery this year, mm -hmm. can you kind of uh, clarify what times of year the nursery is open to the public and what times you're closed? Sure. So this season, our opening day for the spring is going to be Saturday, May 6th. That first week of May is always what we try to aim for. And then we are actually only open on Saturdays to the public, but we'll be open every Saturday, probably through mid-June or so. Just, you know, until as long as we can before it starts getting too hot that we can no longer take it. <laughs> um, and that's primarily the reason why we close in the summer it just gets too hot in the greenhouses you know we do our work out there in the early mornings and then we get out of there so our second set of sales in the fall generally will start around mid-august and run through probably the first week of october so for sure the whole month of september we're open again same thing uh just saturdays but our greenhouses are open to the public on those days and and people are free to come in and shop and ask questions and 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 grab some plants cool um, I want to, as a last thing to discuss, um, I know way back in the beginning um, today, we, you kind of touched on cultivars. Mm -hmm. um, sure. So how do you feel about people using cultivars? And, and I know this is kind of a, I'm kind of setting you up with this question. Um, how do you feel about people using cultivars? And, and the second part of that is, why do you feel like people should um, instead buy native plants from nurseries like yourself as opposed to buying cultivars of natives, uh, you know, from another nursery or big box store? The main thing, and so we we made the decision to not grow or sell cultivars primarily because they have not, they're not the true plants that our pollinators are looking for, right? So if, if people aren't familiar with what a cultivar is, it's a plant that has been 
bred by humans for some sort of attribute that is not naturally occurring, basically. So a lot of the time it's going to be flower color, you know, changing a normal purple coneflower to have white petals or orange petals. You know, there's tons and tons of coneflower cultivars out there. Mm-hmm. Yep. So at the very start, to be as ecologically friendly as possible, I just made the decision, you know, we're not going to do cultivars we're going to try to source this truly wild native seed, get as much of it locally as we can, and we're going to start offering these straight species plants to the public. And that's just the best thing to do. There are some cultivars that have, have proven records of helping pollinators, especially some of the fall ones. So there are some really great goldenrod cultivars, actually, and some good, good uh, aster cultivars. And in a lot of cases, the native grass cultivars, I'm totally cool with because for the most part, those are just bred to be, you know, shorter than their wild counterpart or more mm-hmm. compact than their wild counterpart. So not a lot has cha- been changed with those cultivars. So I, I'm not advocating that people take out any cultivars that they do have, but whenever possible, if you're seeking out new plants and new things to buy, if you can get a straight species plant, if if it's available locally and you can get it easily, then that's that's always going to be the better way to go to help pollinators. And there's all sorts of scientific reasons as as to why, but you know, really briefly, it's just when you change the color of a flower that drastically, the pollinator that has evolved for thousands of years with the wild plant now they don't know what they're looking at, right? It's not the same plant to them. So they may either not visit it at all, or if they do visit it, a lot of research shows that altering the flowers drastically can also make them not as nutritious to the pollinators. Or in some cases, uh, a lot of cultivars don't even produce pollen at all. Yeah. So so whenever possible, like I said, if if you can get a straight species and and try it out, then then we recommend that, and that's that's what our business model is based around, and and so yeah. There's and I'm just kind of baffled, honestly, by by the need. Like for instance, you know, I do get clients that are like, well, I really like those brightly orange colored coneflowers, mm-hmm. and my thinking is like, well, why not just grow butterfly weed it's it's so bright orange like and there's there's times where both of butterfly weed kind of has that natural um what would you call that where every now and then you do get one that naturally is a little bit more blood red than orange sure it's just like a natural 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 variations yeah yeah and i'm like you know you can get this color that you want in this plant it's just a different plant but it's the same color you're looking for so i encourage people that you know they're like well i want a colorful vibrant garden well if you put the right plants together you can have blue flowers you can have orange flowers you can have yellow flowers um and i just think it's incredible when you see there's a there's a few great pictures that i've seen on prairie moon's uh website and mm-hmm. just in other like Xerxes Society, they have these gorgeous pictures of meadowscapes that are so, so incredibly colorful. And my, I get kind of confused. I'm like, why would you feel the need to alter things to make them more colorful? They already are colorful. Um, yes. So I think it's just appreciating what something is instead of trying to wish it was something else. And uh, that's something I guess we all have to, the grass is always greener on the other side and oh i wish i could have it all you know you want your cake and to eat it too but we mm-hmm. just got to learn to appreciate the beauty of these plants because they are really incredibly beautiful just the way that they are um oh absolutely yeah yeah and and like exactly like you said you know if there's a specific color if all you're buying that that coneflower cultivar for is color then there absolutely is a true native plant that's going to mm-hmm. give you that color exactly mm-hmm. yeah um well i think that's everything that i had for you today um i know i'm excited for the season to start it was a beautiful day today the weather was so nice like i'm Mm -hmm. putting i'm putting stuff in my own little greenhouse i'm getting ready to go 
And it's one of those crazy things where I, I save my seeds and I grow my own plants, but then all that's going to go right out the window and I'm just going to come to your nursery opening day <laughs> anyway and buy some more plants because it's crazy. Um, great. No, that's wonderful. It was great having you and thanks for sharing some details. I know it'll be super helpful for people who hadn't even heard of your nursery yet. They just hadn't been in the know. Um, mm -hmm. And we'd love to have you back, maybe to deep dive into some micro topic or just have a zany episode where we could talk about uh, something of particular interest to you, some certain flower. We could just have a whole episode <laughs> on goldenrods and talk about how great they are. Yeah, yeah I, that one, I might I might let Bob take that one. He, he seemed yeah. super excited for that. <laughs> but but yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. And and. Yeah, well, we'll see you in May. Awesome. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Nathan. Thank you for tuning in to the Plant Native Nebraska podcast. If you need notes on anything mentioned in today's episode, check our website, plant-native-nebraska.captivate.fm for more info. I want you to know you've made this podcast special just by listening in. But if you found real value in today's talk, you can both financially support future episodes and dive deeper into the topics we share by finding us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash plant native Nebraska. Thanks for listening.